0: Hey, welcome to the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard with Gospel App Ministries. We are going through the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I want to give you a little bit of uh, introduction because we'll be headed into the Beatitudes today, the Blessed Bees. We've had a long journey so far to get where Matthew wants us, but we're there now. Matthew 5, 3, and we'll spend uh, three podcasts on this particular verse. A lot of introduction. I was a lead pastor for 25 years, and now I'm trying to shape the national conversation about what the singular gospel of Jesus should look like and sound like and feel like to today's modern context. To struggling, longing, dissatisfied, anxious people like you and and me, we're at the cornerstone foundational verse of the cornerstone foundational passage of the unique, powerful, foundational gospel of Jesus Christ. So we have to get this one right. We have to. It's powerful, and it's shocking, uh, more so than is typically taught. I think you'll see what I mean. But we have to get it right in our heads and hearts, and it would begin to cure a lot of what ails the church today, and subsequently our nation. So that our church in the West is experiencing a mill exit, right, Gen Y exit and a Gen Z exit, largely to oversimplify because we, I mean, our message, not the gospel, but our way of presenting it, it, it comes across as exclusive, self-righteous, divisive, and frankly, largely irrelevant, more riddled with microaggressors than an invitation to significant security and belonging for lost and hurting real people, Uh, into that singular, living, unique relationship with God, Father, Son, and Spirit that Jesus paid for 2,000 years ago. Part of the problem is that so many of us have been deeply hurt by our religious institutions, and we're in avoidance mode. I've been, so I get it. It's, humanly speaking, impossible to work through that, really. But God can. You're here I'm not going to take that lightly, so welcome. You know, I'm preaching kind of to the choir, but I'm asking you to bring your wounds. Don't deny them. Bring your scars, your fears, Uh, bring all of those with you. What are you going to do, right? We're going to lay them down at the table of Jesus. You can't get rid of them on your own. You've tried, right? Listen, there are four main passages that inform us in our mission at Gospel App Ministries. There's Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. You've probably heard me talk about them. It speaks of the present and future experience of the height and width and length and depth of the love of Jesus for Christians, all Christians, through the agency of the daily power of God, through the Spirit in our inner being. Then there's Luke 4, where Jesus quotes Isaiah, that's 18 and 19 verse, where Jesus quotes Isaiah and his own mission to the poor, the blind, the beat up, so that they would know that the door to God's favor is open for the likes of them. It's amazing. That's not what they had been told. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, and, and by the way, the fourth one I want to mention briefly, the Old Testament book, The Song of Songs, it's the same message. God pursues and embraces the least likely, the impure, the lost, the sinners, the uglies, the failures, the rejects. That's who are in his heart. He, and those he pursues and embraces, he heals and rescues. I'm one of them. So if you're tracking us, I will assume that you are one too, or we'll soon see that you are more of one than you want to think. So here's my invite. If you're with us, welcome, no matter what you've done, how far you have fallen, the mess that you're in, the mess that you caused, the shame and loss that you've experienced, any hesitancies caused by past woundings, welcome. And by the way, we appreciate your voice. You're a person of honor here at Gospel Rant. Talk to me, bill at gospel-app.com. What do you think? What are you feeling? Pushback? Agree? Love to hear from you. You are probably, like me, looking for significant security and belonging in a lot of places. Or to put it differently, you're looking for self-med somewhere, and you get some. You get some hits, likely, but you want more. I want more. I think that defines Gen Y and Gen Z. We want more and afraid we're not going to get it. And maybe a podcast called The Gospel Rant is the last place you imagine looking. And yet, here you are. So welcome as you are. No judgment here. No shaming. You won't hear me say this is what you should have been doing. uh, And now you should work harder at. None of us has earned a positive relationship with God. But I invite us all into it today, not by doing anything differently, right? It's all about what he's already done. Jesus, right? So just come as you are, sit down, listen, let all of this wash over you. We're going to be digging into the weeds. Just hang on. Uh, and you'll see at the end of uh, particularly these first three podcasts, man, this, this first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven is ridiculous. It's amazing. It's stunning. It should take our breath away. And again, dialogue, that's kosher here, bill at gospel-app.com. Well, it wouldn't surprise me, since we're talking about spiritual things, if today, even in this podcast, you're grabbed by something that you just desperately needed and didn't expect, but a certain part of your brain wanted. So welcome. All right, Beatitudes. Beatitudes is from the Latin word for blessed. It's the cornerstone of the larger Sermon on the Mount, which is the cornerstone for Jesus' message of the gospel. It goes from it goes from 4.23 to 9.35, bookended by almost the exact same verse. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And you see it again in 9.35, almost exact wording. And, but popularly, when we go through the Sermon on the Mount, typically in conferences or sermon series or books, we usually start at one, where Jesus goes up to the mountain, by the way, which is hardly a mountain, more than that, to only one, where he comes down from the mountain. And that's legit, right? But Matthew is the author, after all, and he's carefully worked at gathering and editing the material, all inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it's very clear that he wants us to see the larger section as a whole, from 423 to 935, which we will do. All right, I want to give a quick overview of philosophies of interpretation. You can look at virtually any commentary. I would recommend McKnight's, Scott McKnight's, or Pennington's, uh, but you could look at many others, Grudem's. Here it is, the Luther view, the impossible ideal, one person put it, that the Sermon on the Mount sets the bar way too high for us. And so we're going to fail on our own, and we have to fall back on grace and our need to be rescued. So the standard of the sermon is set so high that it casts us back on grace. I mean, look at 548, be perfect or whole, even as your Heavenly Father is perfect or whole. Really? Right? So I get it. Then there's Calvin's expansion of Luther's view that it is impossible for humanity on our own, but with the power that comes from the Holy Spirit in our inner being— we can begin to see some movement. We can begin to see some fruit. And by fruit, I mean loving others and loving God more than we did before without the Spirit. But that movement is not going to be perfected until heaven. Then there's the Anabaptist view, which sees the Sermon on the Mount as really a new Torah, a new statement of laws. And we have to lean into, if we want to be faithful Jesus followers, we have to do each to the letter in order to gain some favor or blessing of God in this present kingdom. And if that's not stated, it's implied. So, for instance, we don't make oaths of any kind because Jesus says so in the Sermon on the Mount. All right. Then there's the Catholic view, which is very broad and and multifaceted. But if I was to sum it up is it's a spiritual formation. If you want to climb the ladder of of expressed, experienced holiness and relationship with God, spiritual formation, there are steps here. There's gradations, and you can find them in the Sermon on the Mount. And particularly if you're an ordained clergy, this, this is the path you take. Then there's the existential, that the sermon doesn't prescribe laws, but speaks instead to the individual about attitudes and internal dispositions. It's about what we should be, not what we should do. But clearly, if you're going to be different, if you're going to be more like Jesus, you're going to be doing more things, right? Then there's the eschatological, which says Jesus is really talking about that future kingdom when he returns and uh, showers blessings. We'll talk a lot about that. And then Bruner adds, uh, I love Bruner's commentary. I recommend it to you, Frederick Bruner. He adds that the Sermon on the Mount is the gospel concentrated. And so when Jesus speaks, In the Sermon on the Mount, as well as elsewhere, his words go out and make disciples. They change people. They're miraculous. They make them followers of Jesus. So they start off uh, poor in spirit, but they end up being blessed. That's the idea. Here's Bruner. I think, quote, I think something actually happens to listening people when Jesus's beatitudes are passed on to them. The Beatitudes are concentrated gospel. The person for whom the experience of impoverishment is a spiritual crisis, who groans in his or her spirit under the poverty, who is on the way down, and who cries out to this person, Jesus announces, look up. I am here taking your part, and the kingdom I bring is especially for you. Close quote. Um, here's a quote from Surveys. Pink ears. I know I mispronounced that, but listen to this. This is great. So, quote, we can compare the work of the Beatitudes to that of a plow in the fields. Drawn along with determination, it drives the sharp edge of the plowshare into the earth and carves out, as poets say, a deep wound, a broad furrow. In the same way, the word of the Beatitude penetrates us with the power of the Holy Spirit in order to break up our interior soil. I love that. It cuts through us with The sharp edge of trials and with the struggles it provokes, it overturns our ideas and projects, reverses the obvious, thwarts our desires, and bewilders us, leaving us poor and naked before God. All this in order to prepare a place within us for the seed of the new life. Close quote. And I love that. So as we're struggling with the Sermon on the Mount, it's powerful. It should be changing us. That's my expectation, and I would urge that to be yours as well. And I think we must see that happening on that day on that hillside. I've likened it in in an earlier podcast to Genesis 1 where the Spirit, again, was hovering over formlessness and void, just like he did on that hillside, and spoke bara in the Hebrew, only used of God's creative, intentional, powerful words. And what happened was life and order, not perfect, right? There was still Satan. This is what God does then and still now in the shredded lives of people who are anxious, afraid, their lives and brains in formlessness and void, chaos. We miss so much when we think of the Sermon of the Mount or present it as a series of interesting, rational TED Talks that promotes better life principles. And it is that, but it's so much more. And I think you want more. Aren't you tired of just trying harder? They are more than conference PowerPoint presentations where people like us learn a lot, but no one's radically transformed or convicted or changed, right? There's no miraculous. But you leave with a list of principles, all beginning with an alliterated letter P or S or M, things that you should be living by. But we keep failing. Is it just me? Feeling more shame. Or we think maybe we live by them and then are critical of others so wearying. I'm so tired of that. Here's Dallas Willard, quote, We must recognize, first of all, that the aim of the popular teacher in Jesus's time was not to impart information, but to make significant change in the lives of the hearers. Of course, that may require an information transfer, but it is a peculiarly modern notion that the aim of teaching is to bring people to know things that may have no effect at all on their lives. In our day, learners usually think of themselves as containers of some sort with a purely passive space to be filled by the information the teacher possesses and wishes to transfer the from jug to mug model. The teacher is to fill in empty parts of the receptacle with truth that may or may not later make some difference to the life of the one who has it. The teacher must get the information into them. We then test the patients to see if they got it by checking whether they can reproduce it in language rather than watching how they live. A real difference in our life. The secret of the great teacher is to speak words to foster experiences that impact the active flow of the hearer's life, close quote. Young adults, Gen Y, Gen Z, half the population are tired and angry at our old ways. They recognize that something is wrong in our world, big time. Something's wrong inside their own brains, their own hearts, their identities, relationships, sexualities, and they want to change. They want to rescue. They're open to hear something that can help. There is no more anxious or no more lonely generation on record than the young adults. They want something more than another talking head lecture with new principles that they're going to fail by again. And so instead of coming to our gatherings, our churches and getting shamed, that's their words, they've just stopped coming. I can only imagine that these people on the hillside with Jesus, I mean, just imagine that with Jesus there face to face, they are seeing his eyes, his expressions. So many of them, and maybe most, were unexpectedly powerfully moved. Change because a miracle happened, I think we have to read that. that's the whole point. They went from feeling isolated, dishonored, being treated unfairly in their lives, because that's who gathered, right? The sick to death, ashamed of falling short of all expectations, anxious, avoidant, when they thought of God or their version of God. Many were suffering intolerably from a variety of physical, spiritual, emotional brokenness, diseases, illnesses, and then they came face to face with Jesus. And there in the presence of God himself, is an Old Testament concept of Lipne Elohim right that's in the face of God, so you can see his eyes, you can see his smile, you're that close um, so they felt maybe for the first time in a long, long while like persons of honor again, and if you ask them why did they come, they might not have a good answer. I mean what might they say? I mean, it'd be a lot of fun to speculate. then what did they get? I don't think many would have left going well, I learned that I'm going to try harder to be perfect now because I have a bunch of principles. But that's what we do. I tell pastors often when they ask me, uh, hire me to help them make their messages and their church more effective. And here's what I say. that We should expect that when hurting people, right, real people come to our assemblies, large or small, their issues have to be acknowledged. Them not judged, empathetically acknowledged. It's something like this. If you are here and are feeling at the end of your rope, nothing is working, you're feeling anxious, afraid, depressed, beat up, lonely, rejected, overlooked, welcome. You're not alone. I want you to see in the gaze of a person, Jesus, who does see you and still draws near, who feels honor towards you, and you can feel it from him, no matter who you are, or what your story is, because he Touches hurting people, and they get hope. And that's our hope for all of us today, uh, since we've gathered that we are going to be touched by him somehow. Welcome. And in the end, we may ask you, so are you feeling more loved now because you saw him here or that he saw you here? Right? (sighs) Look, real people, sinners all, should feel welcomed in his presence as they are. They should feel honored, touched, and changed. Read the Gospels. If you were to ask anyone who came and heard you speak, did they feel the powerful healing presence of the Spirit, or did they just learn something? Were you touched? Were you changed somehow? And it it may not make sense. And I know these are fighting words to many post enlightenment boomers. I, I I got that. We we're you know we're sensitive to this sort of stuff. Well, we have to speak truth. Yes, but truth was always designed to be spoken in in the presence of the Holy Spirit to change lives. Never apart from that. More to come. So often we think that our role is just to convince people of truth. But, you know, the, the idea is if we did our job well enough that people would buy in. It's up to us to be convincing. Well, look, here's a bombshell. Satan knows the truth really well and it has done nothing for him. Um... There's nothing inherent in truth. It's the power of the Holy Spirit to convert. And he uses the truth, right? Um, He is the truth, right? He's the spirit of Jesus. Our job is to expect, then, that God loves these people far more than we do. And his passion really is to heal, rescue, pursue, and change far more than we want to or have the capacity to Do we preachers and teachers, small group leaders, believe that? We should see people changed every week, a little or a lot. You know, I I expect that the people on the hillside were forever changed. Not perfectly, but noticeably. Here's Willard again. And on your list of the blessed, you're really walking in the good news of the kingdom if you can go with confidence to any of the hopeless people around you and effortlessly convey assurance that they can now enter a blessed life with God who would be on your list of hopeless blessables as found in the world today? Certainly all of those on Jesus' list, for though they are merely illustrative, they are also timeless. But can we follow his lead as a teacher, concretize the gospel even more for those around us? Who would you regard as the most unfortunate people around you? Close quote. By the way, the mirror, in the mirror would be an option. So we're going to dig in more. But at this point, let me say I find myself buying into a combination or a hybrid of Luther, Calvin, and Bruner's lines of thought of, of of interpretation. True, Jesus has he is setting the bar higher than I could ever accomplish. I'll admit that, and I've already screwed up. And remember, in the seven attributes of Jesus and His Kingdom that we said in previous podcasts, no one held the law to a higher extreme than Jesus. As God, He was a screaming perfectionist. Everyone on that hillside had committed unforgivable sins against God, creation, and other humans, except Jesus. And he's not going to wave his hand and say, that's all right. It was your father's fault, or you can blame it on what was done to you, right? No, he's going to 100% honor the law, but, and he will 100% rescue the failed people from its righteous condemnation. That's the cross. And he's also come to do more than just shine light on the Torah. He has come to rescue and embrace and transform serial Torah failures like me. But per Calvin, the spirit poured out inside my inner being. And I'm learning this still as I get older. I'm learning more and more that he has empowered me and and most importantly, motivated me to want to love God and love neighbors more than I did before. So, the Spirit poured out in me is making me follow Jesus and making me want to follow Jesus daily, right? But I will also say that my efforts to love and be loved are still unsatisfactory and will only be perfected in the future. So I'm also buying into the eschatological aspect of, of the sermon as well. So Jesus speaks, he baraz, and I've been changed, not perfectly, But noticeably, I feel more honored. I feel more hopeful. I feel less shamed. I feel more grateful. I feel like I can make a difference. I want to love more. I'm able to accept love more. I want to follow him more. Credit the Holy Spirit. Okay? All right. Enough preaching. Let's get into the blessed bees, the Beatitudes. All right. It's a poetic section at the front of the larger Sermon on the Mount. Man, there are so much... So many uh, exegetical nerds out there like me that are trying to figure out how to how to express the poetry. We do know and agree that nine times we see the Greek makarios, which is the blessed bee. We have we're going to be going into some detail, into some weeds on what it means. But it's 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 glossed to blessed bee or happy or fortunate or flourishing. I'm going to suggest another way of, of looking at it. So of the nine makarios. I like Hans Dieter Betz and Frederick Brüner suggesting that the first beatitude is the key, with the rest of the sermon as an outworking of that. So you would see the first verse five three, and then the rest. So one plus eight. Then also common, uh, you can see it. For instance, Mark Allen Powell he sees the first four beatitudes as a promising reversal for the unfortunate. Second fours as a promising future eschatological rewards to the virtuous. So he sees uh, two sections of four plus a a comment, a closing comment, uh, uh, with the last uh, blessed be chapter five verses eleven and twelve. Or, or you could also see this paralleling the two tablets of the Decalogue. That's very original, like that first four looking vertical, the second four looking horizontal. Then there's the three by three. That's the um, view of Scott McKnight and Pennington so three sets of three. McKnight actually labels the three moral uh, moral themes of the Beatitudes. The first three are for humility. The second three are for justice. The third three are peace. Very creative. Um, Pennington sees a pattern of threes in Matthew, multiples of three. I, I think that's right. So I find myself leaning towards the three by three, but but I also like the, the concept of this first blessed be being the critical capstone. It's the only one that's present tense. There's something different about the first one. So as the Beatitudes are cornerstone of the entire Sermon on the Mount, so the, and so the passion of Jesus for his kingdom, how he, his ministry, the first blessed be should be seen as the anchor of the Beatitudes, right? So sorry for the mixed metaphor let me put it a different way. If your church or organization is looking for a simple vision statement, Matthew five three, would do it. And it would keep you focused on the one thing that Jesus' heart is returning to, and that so often the institution is missing. In his eyes and mission, the least likely, the most broken, the most sorrowful, the most messed up, the biggest sinners, the most mistreated here, find themselves in God's loving embrace as people of stunning honor. That's the that's the mystery of Jesus's work. We want our church to reflect that over and over, particularly the people who are in church, because we forget, right? And we do it one hurting person at a time, and and the church will blossom. We're about going from shame to honor and inviting people from shame to honor and entering from shame to honor every day, and then repeat that. So, Jesus is here for the poor in spirit. That's Matthew 5, 3. Those of us not only need help, we see that we need a rescue. We can't do it on our own, and we have a record to prove it. That is who he has gathered on this hillside. That is who he is addressing his words to on that hillside. By the way, that includes everyone, the multitude and the disciples. I'll say more about that. It's good news for all of us. Many today... specifically, those outside the church have picked up our subtle message. Well, not so subtle that they're not righteous enough. They're not faithful enough. They're not good enough. They're not worthy enough of heaven. So look at us. Get your act together like us and then come and we will like you. We will welcome you. We're going to treat you well. But the Sermon on the Mount says that outsiders are are wildly welcomed in the kingdom of God as they are. They can't compare the damage in them or from them any more than I can. They need to be rescued. That's what Jesus came to do. And the churches then are the gathered rescued, still broken to some degree, large degree, still messed up to a large degree, right? So they look really, really messy with people in transition. And that explains most churches, doesn't it? At least it should. Look, show me a messy church, and we're getting close. Show me a church that's not messy, and I I, I can tell you something about what they think of Jesus. Just saying. Um, Another note up front, the question seems to be asked a lot, who is Jesus speaking to? Some suggest wrongly that he was speaking to just his disciples, and it is implied in the first part, but not at the end. Here's Matthew seven twenty eight. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. So he was clearly teaching the crowds where they heard it, and Jesus is no dummy, right? It's absurd to think that he wasn't speaking to everybody, uh, the disciples and the crowd. And also, by the way, in the bigger scheme, the disciples were also in so many ways poor in spirit. Uh, me too, before Jesus finds me and rescues me, and then... All of us, right? Today, let's remember how Matthew describes the first audience, including you and me right now, of course, Matthew four twenty-three. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria. The people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain. The demon possessed, those having seizures, the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds, crowds of crowds, it says, from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So a reminder, far too often we've imagined and portrayed this was just a Jewish crowd, you know, something like one might see at a synagogue or temple in Jerusalem. Uh, so you just see buses dropping off, good and righteous Jews at the at the bottom of the hillside, Good Jews who just want to get it right and and are willing to listen to this rabbi. And verse 23, I think, opens this up broader. Matthew says, among the people, uh, he's healing the diseases and sicknesses among the people. The word is laos. It can mean just Jewish in a very narrow context, but I think the context has to be really clear. But it's not clear whether this was a Jewish, non-Jewish, or mixed group. Uh, France and Nolan, two commentators, assume that this refers to Jews. Uh, Gundry, on the other hand, lists this with 121, and he says that it speaks to the churchly people of Jesus, whom he will save from sins, irrespective of tribe, meaning uh, what what makes them followers of Jesus, the people of God, is when they are transformed by Jesus, and they become the people. I agree. There's Little in the context to suggest that this was totally Jewish or even majority Jewish crowd. And certainly it speaks to anyone and everyone today. Jesus's mission was always, always global. He didn't have a Greek or Roman bone in his body, and yet he embraced all tribes as a Jew. So I'm going to run with the notion that this was a highly mixed crowd. Push back if you want, bill at gospel com. Likely there were many, no doubt righteous, Religious Jews, who you know, ones who were defined by delighting in Torah, like Psalm 1. They pursued wisdom and understanding. They kept the Sabbath, right? Um, the Psalm 1 Jews, the righteous who do not walk in the way of sinners, who are proclaimed blessed be in Psalm 1. Ashray. we'll talk more about the, the Hebrew word asherah, which is the Jewish equivalent of the Greek word Jesus will use when he says blessed be. More on that. But there were likely many others. Those righteous Jews would have most likely been surrounded by the rest of the soiled, impure world that Jesus' heart was breaking for. Here's what we know. Jesus' fame drew people from all over Galilee. And remember, Galilean Jews were considered impure by the Judean Jewish religious bureaucracy. They were considered less righteous, less God-pleasing, on whom God would certainly not proclaim, Blessed be, per Psalm 1. So even if it was an all-Jewish crowd, there was a mix in the Jews. Uh, These Jews, the Galilean Jews, had a reputation of being revolutionaries. I've spoken about this in a previous podcast. So Angry, passive-aggressive, they're going to fix the matter themselves versus leaning into God. Every family would have known someone who had died in the uprising only a generation before. Many of these Jews, like their Judean brothers, might separate from non-Jews in their community, but perhaps for different reasons. They might separate from their Judean Jewish brothers and vice versa, right? On the hillside. And there was also the Jews, particularly on the strip of the northern bank of the Sea of Galilee, whose livelihood depended upon the Via Maris, the way of the sea, the Roman superhighway that brought commerce, uh, people from other nations, tribes, religions, tongues, worldviews, philosophies. And they, like Matthew the tax collector, would have become dependent upon getting along with and doing business with the world and likely to one degree or another would be seen as traitors or sellouts by the Orthodox Jews, right or wrong. For instance, Galilean fishermen, they fished, but they sold their fish to people on the Roman roads, and so did business with unclean Gentile institutions, more than likely. So to some degree, they were people who would have lost face in Judaism and had to deal with that. They were likely feeling like people without a people, to some degree, a little or a lot. Maybe you relate. Perhaps you feel that you have abandoned the religion of your, ch- your family or childhood or have walked away and now have to make up excuses or have to make it clear that you don't want to have that conversation at Thanksgiving or to be told that or implied that you're impure somehow or less of a, uh, a Christian or a backslider or a compromised Christian. I get it. Welcome to the Sermon on the Mount. So glad you're here. Uh, so much good news for you. Now, there was also, I'm going to suggest, it just seems so obvious to me, there was an even more Gentile international population from the Decapolis, right? Poseidon, northeast, southeast of the lake. There was no legitimate reason exegetically to assume that these were Jews only. Um, But speaking of the Jews from the Decapolis who came, they would have known that they would have not been considered righteous Jews by most of their brothers, who also might be on that hillside too. Maybe they were afraid that God was disappointed in them. Maybe they were afraid of being subject to curses, or maybe they were experiencing that. You get it. Maybe they were done with the religious thing, uh, the denominational thing. Maybe they were anxious, uh, but avoiding God, uh, avoiding religion. They would struggle as they walked down streets, past synagogues, or on feast days or Sabbath. Maybe their families had rejected them. They may wonder if Jesus being a Jewish rabbi was going to shame them which he doesn't, and maybe there were the unclean, the, uh, maybe Jewish, culturally Jewish unclean, the divorced, the sick, the shepherds, the tanners, the ones who married out of their tribe, those who had messed up and shamed their family and tribe, the raped, the sick, the demon-possessed, the prostitutes. There's so many ways to fall short in religion or to be made to fall short. They didn't need a clarification on what the Torah said. You're a failure. That's what it would have said. And then there's the Gentiles, people from all over who worshipped other gods or just lived superstitiously. And Gundry gets it right. Undoubtedly, the breath of the draw to see Jesus in person serves, quote, Matthew's portrayal of Jesus as an exemplary evangelist to the Gentiles. So the Gentiles came too. Why? Well, they needed to be healed. They had a pain that needed to be removed, and they weren't getting it removed. Where, where else do you go? But listen, it cost them to go and listen to submit to a Jewish rabbi. Look, your reputation is at risk here. Did they come out of necessity, last-ditch effort? Were they cynical? Were they desperate? See, I, I don't see them coming like we might in our society to understand the finer points of Judaism, wondering if they might convert. All right, generally speaking, they wouldn't have been welcomed in the temple anyway. Think of the Samaritan woman or the prostitute or Matthew. They would feel the loss of face in in a very strong honor-shame culture. And not happy or at peace in either community. So they're stuck. And nowhere will Jesus say that they need to get circumcised in order to be blessed. Or to convert. Or to go to the temple. Right? Or to do anything. He calls them blessed be at the very beginning. Matthew 5, verse 3. As they are. It's shocking. You'll see. They came from all over Syria. Syria was a massive Roman region that spread from the Mediterranean, Tyre and Sidon, those ports to Damascus, and further on to the Euphrates River. Gundry wonders if Matthew is including Syria in, quote, anticipation of Jesus' ministry to a Gentile woman who lives in the Phoenician part of Syria. Chapter 15, verse 21 to 28. And for the purpose of giving Jesus' ministry among Galilean Jews overtones of later evangelization of the Gentiles. Meaning, it's for, it's for non-Jews too. Gundry concludes that, quote, the disciples about to be taught at the beginning must be none other than the crowd that had been taught at the close. So, he, he goes it one step further and says that the crowd were the disciples that referred to at the beginning, looking forward. So what were they looking for? Matthew tells us that so many were just broken. They're busted, lost, diseased, no cure, no respite, only a life of pain and isolation and shame and fear, no doubt. So verse 24, people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. So disease in the Greek is nosos. It refers to a physical malady, an illness. This would have been, in in this shame, honor culture, socially devaluing. So the person lost honor. They gained shame. They lost face with the disease. Sickness is any debility or weakness. Um, Often disease and sickness are linked together. And, and, and that would include demon possession under the broader rubric of sickness. For one commentator, John Noland, a thread runs from the uses of whole and every in verse 23, the whole of Galilee, every disease and every sickness, to the uses of whole and all in verse 24, all those sick, the whole of Syria, and on in verse 25 to the list of all the parts of Jewish Palestine. Matthew, says Nolan, is concerned to create an image of comprehensiveness, clearly in the interest of asserting the scale of the significance of Jesus and his passion to change the world, the nations. From the historical perspective, this involves some exaggeration, meaning Matthew's telling us the story. And this is from his point of view. He looked out and it was all, all this was going on. And everywhere. For the sick and diseased Jews and non-Jews, if this was you, you just didn't need to wonder in that culture how God or the gods or the heavens or fate or fortune felt towards you. You were on the backside. You were cursed. God or the divine or the heavens or fate had to be angry at you and you were subject to negative evaluation and judgment. And listen, there's no record of these people trying to appease his wrath on the hillside. Maybe they were, no record of that. And maybe some of these, likely some of these, tried in John's baptism by repenting. But listen, if you repented, if you were part of the crowd that came out to see John and be baptized, and you were still ill, you were still diseased, well, now what? I mean, don't you just kind of throw up your hands and think all is lost? I mean, if God won't accept a repentance by one of the prophets, then I'm screwed. No, I'm I'm thinking they came out of immediate desperation. They came to get some relief from pain, right? Any relief, secular or religious, came to get relief from the shame caused by the sickness, the loss of face caused by the illnesses, the isolation, the fear of death and dying. And they were willing to go anywhere, try anything, listen to anyone, including this Jewish rabbi. They were desperate. And you know what? They needed rescue. Jesus, they heard, had this amazing power that healed, that relieved pain. So, okay, let's go. I don't care if he's a good Jew or bad Jew of Jerusalem or Galilee. I don't care. I want relief. And if he can do it, I'm in. I'm willing to risk failure of being mocked, of associating with other outies. If I have a chance of healing, I'm in. If this doesn't work, I don't know what I'm going to do next. Right? I think that's the, the mindset. It was, per Tielecki, Helmut Tieleckli, quote, a host of the miserable the guilt burden, the lonely, the incurably ill, the careworn, the people who are hagridden by anxiety. They gaze at Jesus with inscrutable eyes that can be fathomed only by the Savior himself. In some mysterious way, Jesus attracts the miserable. He draws the sinners and sufferers from their hiding places like a magnet. Undoubtedly, the reason for this is that Men sense in this figure something they do not see in any other man. The powers of guilt and suffering cannot touch him. That mysteriously these powers retreat as he comes by, so they sought to get near to him. Close quote. I love it. Here's Tieleki again. Quote, these people gathered around Jesus know, or at least think they know, what is coming when Jesus opens his mouth. God's declaration of war against man, denunciation of sin, painful scrutinizing exposure of those inmost thoughts with which God is not pleased. Then Jesus opened his mouth and something completely unexpected happened, something that drove these people to an astonishment bordering upon terror, something that held them spellbound long after he ceased speaking and would not let them rest. Jesus said to the people gathered around him, People who are harried by suffering, misery, and guilt, blessed are you, blessed are you. The Sermon on the Mount closes with the remark that the crowds were astonished and frightened, even though it was a sermon on grace. But this is what always happens when God unveils his great goodness. It is so immense, so far beyond and contrary to all human dimensions and conceptions that at first one simply cannot understand it. And we stand there in utter helpless bewilderment. Close quotes. I think that's the spirit. I think he's captured it. Ah, Jesus does something so shocking, so intimate, so unlikely, so invasive, so moving for people like them. He draws near. He doesn't avoid. He comes close in contrast to how they have been treated by others. In his eyes, they see compassion, uh, like the splagnizomai, the Greek word that we'll hear of him when he weeps for Jerusalem they probably see tears in his eyes, not an elitism, not uh, just a rationalism, not criticism or racism or judgment, not being better than thou, not looking down, well, you should have know better, right? He rolls up his sleeves and touches them, speaks to them, blesses them, heals them. I am so sure that he smiles at them. No questions asked, no strings attached. Isn't this shocking? No closing shots, no demands. Just a gracious rescue. In a word, he honors them like they haven't been honored by another person for a long, long time. No wonder they would listen to him, follow him, tell others about him. And also, they're changed. Those touched by Jesus are going to turn outward a little bit. Desperate people, hurting people, beat up people naturally turn inward. It's just the way our brains are wired. And we focus more on our needs, our desires, uh, our rescue. No judgment. Me too. But when Jesus' spirit is poured out, selfish people become merciful people, a little or a lot. That's what he'll say in, in one of the later Beatitudes, verse 7. Their world has changed. And the world has changed a little or a lot. And that's the kingdom. Here's Dallas Willard again. Quote We have already indicated the key to understanding the Beatitudes. They serve to clarify Jesus' fundamental message the free availability of God's rule and righteousness to all of humanity through reliance upon Jesus himself, the person now loose in the world among us. They do this simply by taking those who, from a human point of view, are regarded as most hopeless, most beyond all possibility of God's blessing or even interest, and exhibiting them as enjoying God's touch and abundant provision from the heavens. This fact of God's care and provision proves to all that no human condition excludes blessedness, that God may come to any person with his care and deliverance. Oh, my goodness, what good news. Back to Willard. God does sometimes help those who cannot or perhaps just do not help themselves, so much for another well-known generalization. The religious system of his day left the multitudes out, but Jesus welcomed them all into his kingdom. Anyone could come as well as any other. They still can. That is the gospel of the Beatitudes. Close quote. By the way, in my conversations with particularly millennials, this is what they want to see. This is what they believe should happen in the church. The religious system of his day left multitudes out, but Jesus welcomed them all into his kingdom. He didn't leave them alone and none of us, but he welcomed them all. All right, we're going to pick up here in the next podcast Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus says, the words he uses are outlandish, frightening, and wonderful. Then and still today, and I think you'll see why I think we've been largely lazy and inconsistent as we've taught the Sermon on the Mount, and in particular, the blessed bees. Look, I can almost guarantee you're going to hear something new, uh, life-changing, and different. And look, is this just exegetical nitpicking? No, God help us. The Sermon on the Mount and its capstone, the Beatitudes, is the gospel concentrated. What you believe Jesus said and meant determines what you think of the gospel right now. If your spiritual walk is languishing, if you can relate to the crowd that desperately came to hear Jesus, not the spiritually successful, whatever that means, if you feel that God might be or is disappointed in you or worse, if you feel like you've lost your faith or been an underachiever or failure and that the bad things in your life are God raining his disappointment down on you, or has pulled back, well, I can say that you've misunderstood the gospel. This would be great news for you. Enjoy. Run the race. You're going to get a kick out of this. Don't get defensive. Just join the crowd. Eff- effectively, I land there every day to one degree or another because I'm shame-prone, and I'm not alone. I get a little what the crowd was feeling every day. There are days when I won't even come to the mount to hear Jesus I'm too ashamed to see his eyes as they gaze at me. I'm messed up. And again, there are days I don't want to see his eyes. I tend to look away and down. Like I said, I'm a mess. So, no judgment from me, but if you f- want to feel God's favor now, his embrace, if you want to look into his eyes and see his adoration of you, how highly he measures you, to have your strangling shame lifted a little or a lot, that critical inner voice shut down momentarily anyway. Welcome to Sermon on the Mount. So just muscle through. You're going to be encouraged. You're going to be surprised. You're going to be honored and feel loved, less ashamed, less isolated. You may even laugh more. And and if you feel like it, don't hold back. We've encapsulated all of this on our online gospel experience, the dance. So if you want all of this in just two hours, do the dance, -dance www.the-dance.org. We call it a gospel in the box, or in this context, the Sermon on the Mount in a box. It's under two hours, 29 bucks. You have 30 days to do it as many times as your heart desires, depending on how beat up you are. We recommend a minimum four times. Want to reenter that dance? Start hearing the heavenly music again. See Jesus' smile at you again as you are. Shame free. Satisfaction guaranteed. www.the-dance.org and also, please like, follow, and comment on, and share this podcast. Right, so like, follow, make a comment, uh, uh, share this podcast with others. Be a missionary to people. Uh, you know, you know who the Holy Spirit's brought to your mind. Like, you know, I wish Aunt Mary, I wish Bob, I wish Sarah would have heard this. We want to get the word out. It's time for something new and bold and other-oriented on planet Earth. If, if, if the place where you get your podcast doesn't allow you to comment, just write me directly, bill at gospel-app.com. All right? Well, that's a lot. Until next time, take heart, child of God. The love of God is immeasurable. It's unchanging. It's indescribable.